So here we are, it's about, what, 10 days in or so to the retreat, but of course, who's counting? I'm sure you're not. <laughs> and at this stage of the retreat, we've given you a lot of instructions, right? A lot of ideas and techniques and ways to practice working with the body, working with the breath, uh, moving on to more subtle experiences like moods and mind states, thoughts, Vedna, feeling tone, a lot of different um, ways to be with practice, different ways to encourage this kind of bare attention, bare awareness, simply just being with things as they are, right? But let's get real. What's actually happening most of the time? You're thinking, right? You're thinking about your experience, about yesterday, about tomorrow, you're judging, you're comparing, you're commenting, and you're narrating. This is a lot of what we do, even as we're trying to come into the present moment. And it happens during the sitting meditation, and it happens even more in the in-between periods, right? You know, that's just what the mind does. It just roams in this field of especially past and future, familiar territory, um, but also thinking about the present. There's commenting or narrating or judging or comparing. That's actually a little bit of advanced practice. If you're thinking about the present, you know, you're, you're getting a little bit ahead of the game. It's still thinking, but at least you're thinking about this, you know, thoughts about practice, but it's still thinking. And in meditation, because we're trying just to be simply present, see what's here, see what's happening, we get to see this. And it's kind of humbling to see the nature of our minds and where it goes and what it does and what it obsesses around. There was a cartoon I saw that really uh, pointed to this. It's from that strip Rhymes with Orange by Hilary Price. And the setting in the the cartoon strip is there's, it's a doctor's office. There's someone sitting on that little examination table and the doctor's there with a clipboard and they're obviously reading the results from some tests to the patient. And the doctor says, the MRI confirms it. Your mind is full of dumb and repetitive thoughts. <laughs> so we don't need an MRI to have that revelation, you know, look at what the mind does. It just has no shame. It goes anywhere and everywhere with great rapidity and uh, 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 energy. And now in saying, talking about in this way, it's certainly not that thoughts are the enemy or that thoughts are bad or wrong or we shouldn't be thinking. That is not what I want to talk about tonight. Thoughts and the this whole process of, you know, the, alive, the aliveness of the mind, that's what the mind does. It's its nature. It's, it's, it's conditioning to think. But we do want to begin to understand our thoughts and where they're going, what they're doing, because it's through our thoughts, as the Buddha said, that we create the world. We create our reality through our thinking and our concepts and our reactions to experience. And the thing is, this world that we create is often chaotic. They call it the field of the kalesas or samsara. You know, this is samsara, just this alternating push and pull of wanting and not wanting, liking and not liking, you know, pushing away and holding on, and a good dose of delusion thrown in there for good measure woven through. This is really a lot of what we experience a lot of the time. 
And this is actually pretty normal for a human being, for a human mind. And we've had years of practicing to think in this way. So as one teacher said, distraction is the habit of the mind. We've actually trained our minds to some extent to be the way they are. They didn't just, didn't just wake up and the mind was like that. We've had a lot of time trying, uh, not deliberately trying, this is just how we have been trained or conditioned or learnt to use the mind. It's what the mind does. And when we bring that mind to meditation, well, there's a lot of struggle, right? I call the kind of meditation we're often experiencing sheepdog mindfulness. And the image is, you know, it's like our thoughts are the sheep. And, you know, sheep, they're like, <laughs> you know, and they're a little fearful and they're kind of, you know, they just want what they want. And if they can't get it, they're, they're you know, struggling. And if you, if you see a sheepdog actually working with sheep, you know, often gets them into this little ball, but it's a quivering mass, right, of these sheep. And any moment, you know, one's going to dart out and that sheepdog has to rush around and try and pull it back in. And that's the kind of mindfulness that we're often doing here. It's like, there's someone coming. <laughs> and it's exhausting, right? Sheepdog mindfulness. The only way we're going to find some relief is if, if, is if the sheep actually calm down a little. If they're actually okay with just hanging out with the sheepdog. Because otherwise, I mean, are you exhausted at the end of the day? Because we're spending so much energy trying to corral this crazy mind. So really looking at thoughts and seeing how they work and coming to a, a wiser relationship to them is really very important. Now, again, as I say, it's not, as I say all this about thoughts, that thoughts are bad or wrong. It's the nature of the mind to think. But here we can get curious about what's actually happening here. And what is it we're choosing to think about? I mean, it might seem like a choice, but that's part of what I want to talk talk about tonight. Um, And especially here on retreat, where, again, let's face face it, we don't need to think about too much, right, to get through a day here. Not rocket science, you know, get up, get dressed, maybe shower, bath, you know, bathroom, whatever, come sit, go walk. Not a huge amount of calculation needs to go into this process. Yet, I'm sure you know, the mind obsesses about things great and small eternally. As Joseph said, he has has these great lines. One of his lines about thought is, nothing is worth thinking about. And again, that has two meanings, because nothing is worth thinking about. But also, nothing is worth thinking about. Depends which way you look. But it's surprising. So we have this kind of mind. We've trained it for how many? 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever number of years to think this way. And we come to a retreat and we bring this agitated, obsessive thinking mind to practice. And we sit down and we expect what to happen? Something different. Well, again, you know, if you look at our conditioning and this culture, and it's not that different from a lot of cultures, but this is a culture we're in, in the U.S., the the sort of societally approved drug of choice is caffeine, right? 
you know, this culture runs a lot on caffeine. You know, how many Starbucks are there and all the other coffee shops? And it's not just caffeine in coffee, it's in soda. And now, of course, there's energy drinks. And you go into any 7-Eleven or convenience store or petrol station and right by the counter so you can grab one is that, you know, I don't know how much it is, but it's a big dose of caffeine. And so that's kind of rampant throughout this culture, this wired energy that people feel they need to get through the day. And these energy drinks, especially Red Bull, I've never had one, but it's so popular, it's made the two guys that came up with it, they're billionaires. I mean, they sell so much of this stuff around the world, they're, they're billionaires. And the culture itself has this, this emphasis on everything fast and immediate and now. And, you know, it used to be that email was bad enough, but now it's like instant messaging. You know, email took 30 seconds or a few minutes, and now it's like instant everything. And the emphasis on multitasking, which, again, science is proving isn't actually possible. All we're doing is more things at once badly rather than, you know, many things well. I was talking to a staff person the other day about, you know, how kids are growing up in this kind of world where you're doing all these things at once. And he said, yeah, I was going to watch a movie with my son and we sat down and we're watching and then I notice he's updating his Facebook status and he's texting his friends. I'm like, are you watching the movie? Yeah, yeah, I'm watching, I'm watching, I'm typing and I'm texting. And the mind is just is being sort of stewed in, in that kind of hyperactivity all the time. And then, as I said, we bring this mind that's had all of these influences and Im impacts by society and how we live our lives to this hill in the middle of central Massachusetts, you could say in the middle of nowhere, where the most exciting thing to watch is the sunset. Oh, now, you know, someone said we have construction TV, con courtesy of um, the workmen out there. It's like, oh, what's happening with the construction? Oh, my gosh. You know. But relatively speaking, not much going on. But now we want calm. We want simplicity. We want the mind to be quiet. And understandably, we get frustrated. We get impatient or surprised or even resentful, judgmental, that it's not. But it's understandable because we have trained the mind in this other way, and this is its nature. So we have to start, if we want to train our mind in a different way, really have the possibility of some peace and ease in our practice, we need to start looking at this tendency of mind and the nature of thought itself. And again, in meditation, you do get to see what is a thought. It's this blip of energy in the mind, some words or an image. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you see it clearly, if you bring mindfulness to it, a number of you have said this already. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have had this experience. What happens? You know, it's like a wisp, it's like a fog that fades, or a balloon that bursts, or a bubble that pops. Thoughts have the energy we choose to give them. When we don't notice them, when we're identified with them, when we believe in them, they create our world, they create our reality, they create our view of ourselves and our perceptions of others. If we see them clearly, we can start to have a very different relationship to thoughts, and this is so important. 
And thoughts certainly seem random or that they're not in control. You know, you just all of a sudden realize what you're thinking. You're like, where on earth did that come from? You know, how did I get there? And of course, sometimes you can see that sequence of thoughts that, you know, kind of leapfrogged from this to that and all over the place and landed you there. Most of the time, we don't need to figure that out. It's not that helpful. But thoughts are conditioned like anything else. They have a lawful nature. We mightn't be aware enough to see the triggering sequence that develops into a thought, but it's there and it is possible to bring some mindfulness to it. And in the context of meditation, one of the things we need to realize is whatever is unresolved in our life, sooner or later, it's going to come up here, right? You know, it's like you create this space and nature abhors a vacuum. So what comes up? You know, this stuff of our lives. And again, this, this is natural. And especially if something's unresolved, this is where the mind goes, whether it's past or future, you know, stewing over it, trying to figure it out. And our willingness to be with that and see that process clearly allows the meditation to deepen, allows insight to unfold. Our unwillingness is what leads to restlessness, is what leads to the mind slipping off or out of the present moment and into this story, the story of me, the story of my life. And really this movement, this, if this unwillingness to, to just be with things just as they are, that's what leads to restlessness. It's restlessness of mind, restlessness of body. And the core of this movement of mind, this core of this tendency, this strong patterning of restlessness that many of us experience, I see as answering this basic question, which gets divided into three questions. Am I okay? And then was I okay? Will I be okay? And all... I shouldn't know, but it's never that. But most of what we're thinking about is some way trying to resolve one of those three questions. Am I okay? Was I okay? Will I be okay? And you can just see how much time and energy we put into that. And maybe you're aware of this, but sometimes just really highlighting what the mind is doing helps us to understand how strong this tendency is. And so it's regret about the past and anxiety or planning for the future. This is what the mind is doing. I read somewhere recently, and I don't know how they calculate these things, but this is what I read, and it was on the internet, so it must be true. Um, We have 66,000 thoughts a day, and two-thirds of them are fear-based. You can count, actually. What better, you know, you've got the perfect experiment here. Do a tracking for us. The Dalai Lama says that all unwholesome mind states originate in fear. And really, when I'm talking about this, am I okay? Was I okay? You know, you can see that it's really fear-based. It's some kind of anxiety that's really deep in most of us. Certainly, I know that very well. So this is not a new phenomenon, as much as I've been talking about, you know, how this society and culture has led us to have this particular kind of mind that we have, but it's certainly not unique to this time and age. 
the Buddha knew about this tendency of mind. And uh, he said, when we get into this kind of agitated worrying, it leads to an increase in desire and wanting, to solidifying the sense of self, and to ignorance or delusion. There's actually a great sutta in the Majjhimanikaya. It's a second one, so I don't know if they're in any order of importance, but it's, it's right there at the front, the Subhasawa Sutta. And this is a paragraph in this sutta talking about what we do with the mind. This is how she attends unwisely. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I become in the future? Or else she is inwardly perplexed about the present. Thus, am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? Can you relate? This is from 2,500 years ago. All of this trying to figure out, basically, am I okay? Was I okay? Where will I go? What will happen to me? The Buddha called this kind of thinking unwise attention. And he says, when we obsess in this way, it causes unwholesome states to arise in the moment and ones that have arisen to increase or persist. It's this kind of obsessive thinking that really, when you look at it, you see, even though we get so fixated in it, it's a source of suffering. And, you know, the source of so much kind of neurotic, obsessive thinking. So I wanted to get sort of the modern day equivalent of that kind of thinking. So who did I turn to? Woody Allen. So here's a Woody Allen kind of little statement about the same kind of thinking. To love is to suffer. To avoid, avoid suffering, one must not love. But then one suffers from not loving. Therefore, to, su- to love is to suffer. Not to love is to suffer. To suffer is to suffer. To be happy is to love. To be happy, then, is to suffer. But suffering makes one unhappy. Therefore, to be unhappy, one must love or love to suffer, or suffer from too much happiness. I hope you're getting this down. Again, so he's always a little funny, but it's kind of what we do, isn't it? We're trying to figure things out. We're trying to protect ourselves. We're trying to plan. We're trying to control. We're trying to make things okay. We spend so much energy trying to make things okay, dwelling on the past, worrying about the future. And you can see in meditation, I mean, how much time are you spending going between those two? Thoughts of past, worry planning for the future. You know, we could calculate how much. And that leads to this restlessness that I want to talk about tonight. When, when we let the mind roam in these fields, it's both out of and the source of Restlessness. And I really, as I've reflected on this, see restlessness as perhaps the major hindrance for Westerners. This not, uh, unwillingness to be with what is or accept what is. And as I said, the mind then just slipping off, not being okay, looking to, you know, struggling with. 
And in my little limited um, experience in, in uh, especially Buddhist Asian country, Asian Buddhist countries, they don't have this tendency of mind so much. I mean, I've heard teachers say, they just say to their students, stop thinking, and they're like, okay, right, meditate, don't think. And they do it. I, I don't know if that's so, but I've heard that said. But I had a, a, a personal experience of this myself. Uh, not last fall, but the fall before, I went on pilgrimage to India to visit the holy sites of the Buddha. It was actually the second time I'd made that trip, the first time the year before, Guy and I had done it on our own. And this time I went with a group of students from um, a dedicated practitioners program that I lead. So the first time we went there, Guy and I met this lovely young couple in Bodhgaya who are part of the convert Buddhist community. That's people from what used to be called the untouchable caste, now the Dalits, who are converting to Buddhism to basically step out of the caste system in India that's so limiting to people's lives and interactions. And so converting to Buddhism, some of them do it just to get out of the caste system, but uh, Rajesh and Usha, who we met, really very sincere practitioners, but you know, just beginning to learn about Buddhism. So we had this lovely connection with them. When they learned I was coming back, they invited me to do a day long for their community. They met once a month, and I was going to be there at a time they would meet. So. I led a day long for convert Buddhists in Bodhgaya, India. And it was kind of a trippy thing to do, to be in Bodhgaya, the you know, side of the Buddha's enlightenment, speaking to Indians, the, the, you know, the, the um, ethnicity of the Buddha, the land of the Buddha's birth. Buddha was an Indian. And teaching them the Dharma was kind of like this amazing circle that I felt part of and so, um, so much privilege and blessing to be able to offer even a little bit back to the land of the Buddha's birth and help in that little way that I could. But it was a, had its strangeness to it too. You know, I had to do it through a translator. I'd never met apart from a Jeshanusha, didn't know anyone there. Um, it was a very unusual mix of people from a young, like 14-year-old girl to these elderly monks who came to kind of check me out and little had its challenges, um, including this Swami who wandered in at lunchtime and started this big philosophical debate about the nature of the mind. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> anyway, but at some point I said to them, and I was actually being helped by one of the students on the retreat. He offered to come and just support the retreat and be there. And at some point I said to the people at the retreat, would you like interviews, you know, practice discussions? Oh, yes, yes, we would like that very much. Okay. Um, so we arranged during one talk, talk, walking period that I would go in one place and, and Scott, this man, would go in another. And it wasn't a very great facility. We were just in this little room and there was nowhere for us to do interviews. They just parked me in this corridor and said, stand here. And I'm like, Okay, you know, this is where I'll do my interviews. There was kind of a chest there, so I just perched on the chest. And one by one, Usha, the woman that uh, helped arrange the day, brought these beautiful young Indian women to me. And without asking us, all the men went to Scott, all the women came to me. And so I would just start, and she was translating, and she was translating, saying, well, how is your meditation? And they would just say, oh, very good, very nice. I said, okay, so what happens when you sit down? Oh, very peaceful, very calm. Sort of, okay. Well, you know, do you have any problems in your meditation? No, 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 I enjoy it very much. <laughs> sort of, well, is there anything I can help you with, you know? 
and I, you know, I didn't really know how to get in there. So, you know, one by one, by the third one, we're all pretty much the same responses. I felt like saying, maybe you should teach me about meditation. Because everyone that I spoke to, when they sat down, they could invite the mind into this place of calm and ease. And their meditations, so they told me, were lovely. This is not our general experience, is it? You know, we sit down and it's often, not always, of course, and it, it deepens, but often a real struggle. We get caught in this push and pull of the hindrances that we've spoken about, but really I see restlessness at the core of our struggle with the hindrances. It's both the result of the other hindrances and the cause for the other hindrances to arise. So our actual experience, even as we're going through just wanting or not wanting or doubt and even sleepiness, there's this kind of restlessness there, this agitation, this unwillingness or inability to be present. We're not getting what we want. We're getting what we don't want. Where There's doubt, there's fear, there's agitation. And we can be in what I call the restlessness cycle, where there's a little bit of frustration or restlessness. So we get into these hindrances, the difficult mind states. Or maybe at first it starts with a difficult mind state. Some memory comes up, some issues, some reactivity, but then, you know, that's painful. So the mind slips off and it gets agitated and there's a restlessness increase. So more difficult mind states come up. So we can often be caught in a kind of cycle of restlessness. So we need to start noticing this tendency of mind because it can be, obviously, a real impediment for our practice and for our deepening and for our ability to actually be with what is, to be present. Ajahn Suchito, who's one of the uh, seniors at, uh, in the Amaravati Ajahn Chah lineage, he's a, a head abbot of Chitta, uh, Chithurst, Chitta Viveka in England, very um, deep practitioner, great sense of humor, very you know, sincere. But he talks about, he actually went on this amazing pilgrimage in India. I mean, my pilgrimage had its challenges and we were driving in a, you know, a, a bus with hotels arranged, now food taken care of. He went on pilgrimage in India on foot, on dana, keeping the monastic schedule. So that's another whole level. But in that, and he wrote a great book on it. I can't remember the title, A Great Way or something. Rude Awakenings. Rude Awakenings, Awakenings. yes. And in the beginning of that book, he talked a little about his um, experience as a monk when he was a, a newer monk in Thailand. And he said at one point it was so difficult, but he stayed a Buddhist monk because to leave would have required the conviction that things would be better somewhere else. At that time in my life, conviction narrowed to one insight. Any suffering is mind wrought, and the way to the end of it has to come through getting to its root. Instead of figuring out different places to go, I realized I had to come to terms with restlessness. Instead of muttering about the lack of interesting things to do and the stifling heat, 
and the poor food and the hideous mind states, I realized that the root of the matter, although hard to come to terms with, was my own aversion. Sometimes I would recognize that I was holding out against things and then I would relax, let go. That left the way it is, the pilgrim's way. This is our struggle at times. I mean, it is difficult. Our minds are difficult. Our bodies can be painful. The conditions here, as good relative as they are to many people's lives, can be hard. And if, but if we hold out against things, if we keep that sense of, of um, unwillingness, unwillingness to be here, then it leads to restlessness, it leads to suffering. And so this restlessness of mind keeps us, keeps us agitated. You know, have, have you noticed how we can often be waiting for the next thing to happen? We're sitting, and I think Greg was doing that, was it last night, you know, waiting for the bell to ring. Oh, phew, the bell rings. We start walking. When is that over? When can I go back and sit? Sitting's much better, isn't it, than walking? You know, we come and sit, waiting for the bell to ring. Or we're waiting for lunch, and we finally, it's lunchtime, and we're eating and we're not present for the food, to enjoy sitting down or getting served some nice food. And so this tendency to be always looking for the next thing, always kind of in suspended mode, because there's this feeling that it's not here somehow, that whatever we're looking for isn't here, but maybe it's in the next thing. Maybe it's in the next mind state or the next experience. And so we're kind of searching out of this sense of dissatisfaction, and sometimes we don't even recognize that. We don't even know what we're searching for. There's just this sense that it's not here now, this sense of dissatisfaction, this vague sense of not okayness that leads to this kind of restlessness. It's really important to notice if you see you have this tendency or it comes and goes, you see it at times, this kind of leaning forward because here isn't okay here isn't good enough. And so there's this waiting, this suspended kind of waiting till it gets better, till I'm a different person, till I get my next interview, till the Dharma talk, till I can finally get to bed, whatever it is. So turn to that. This is a noble experience, this sense of dissatisfaction, this sense of leaning into the future. However you notice it, it's knowable body, how does that feel, what's the mind like, what's the attitude, what are the thoughts around it, and to see that it's not the truth of things. There isn't something out there that's going to fix it, fix us, make it better. So we, it's always this invitation to come back and actually be present. As we begin to notice this tendency of mind, it can often seem that our meditation is actually increasing our restlessness. 
You know, we were fine trucking along, busy as we are in our lives, but come and sit and try to be still, and it's like we're filled, we're consumed with this restless kind of energy. But I think it's only in the quietness showing us what's actually there a lot of the time. This is what we need to to be aware. And we can get curious about this tendency and actually begin to feel it as a suffering state. Usually we're so driven by the restlessness to find what we want out there that we don't turn to the restlessness itself, to the felt sense. So again, we feel it in the body. What is that feeling like? What's the energy like in the body? We see what the the mind is like. And we see how restlessness keeps us a little superficial. This tendency, as I said, for the mind to keep moving off whatever's happening and into past and future. How we relate to restlessness is obviously, it's really important because we can believe the message of restlessness, that we need to keep moving, that we need fidget, you know, just this kind of antsy energy of wanting to do something, anything, than just sit here or just walk up and down. It's like, I've got this energy and I've got to go. You know, and sometimes you can feel like you're going to burst with this energy, right? It's just, I can't bear this anymore. This is kind of, it can be electric, it can be vibratory, it can be, you know, shock of waves going through, or it can be a tightness or a contraction. But it's just energy. Sometimes people say about energy, oh, give it a big feel, give it a big space. And I think that's a helpful metaphor or practice. I actually think getting really minute with it is helpful too. What is this energy like? And can I use, it's like riding a wave, can I use that energy to get a little closer to my experience? We often label this kind of energy as unpleasant. And as I said, it can be a suffering state if we see it, it's like, oh. but can we find any pleasantness in it? Is there just, is, can, it, can we just see it as energy that we can actually use for practice. We look at what the mind does with it, because the mind it's the mind that's telling us, this is not okay. I can't bear this another moment. I need to get out of here. I need to do something. I need to get rid of this. I need to, uh, uh, whatever it is. And so we need to look at that story, that message, that it's not okay, because it moves so quickly from it's not okay to I'm not okay. And this is what gets really interesting. And this message, you know, whatever level we tune into it, I'm not okay, to me I really see it, it's like the grit in the oyster that they, you know, the oyster actually makes the pearl around. If we tune into that, bring that into our mindfulness, it is a doorway to really deepen our practice because we start to see how much we get, if we don't attend to it, how much we're just going to be in the push and pull of this again and again. What's interest, one, of the, one of the interesting things about restlessness is it's actually one of the last fetters to go 
before full enlightenment. The Theravada system, there are four stages of enlightenment. In each stage, there are these 10 fetters that either get released, let go of, abandoned, or weakened, and they you know, progress through the four stages. The last stage of enlightenment, just before full enlightenment, one of the fetters to go is called restlessness. And I was always really curious about that, like restlessness, you know, this kind of thing that's so common that we all experience. Why, why is that one of the last fetters to go? And I've, you know, looked into that a little. There are some suttas that talk about this kind of restlessness and how subtle it is. But I, I was reading uh, The Island, which is a compilation of teachings and um, talks about Nibbana, about waking up by Ajahn's Pasano and Amaro. They just collected all of the sutta references and uh, ancient and modern teachings about Nibbana. And so great material in there. But they had a piece on, on uh, this fetter of restlessness. And this is what they said about it. The restlessness to which this refers, that is, as a last fetter, the restlessness to which this refers is not the fidgeting of the uncomfortable meditator. It is the subtlest of feelings that there might be something better over there or just in the future, a feeling that that, which is out of reach, might have more value in some way than this. It is the ever so insidious addiction to time and its promises. The feeling that that out there is, has more value than this. And so the mind just moves, whether it's moving in these really gross ways or the subtlest, subtlest, as I said, dissatisfaction, dis-ease. That's the kind of restlessness that is a fetter at this stage of awakening. But we all have tastes of that too, the mind just moving in these subtle ways. And they talk about the addiction to time and its promises. So again, I really see the mind moves in these three major ways. It goes to the past, goes into the future, and if it's in the present, again, advanced practice, it's still doing this kind of comparing. So there's still movement even in that. So what is it that the mind actually does when it's not willing to be present, when this stuff has come up and this agitation is present? goes into the past. And this rumination about the past, this reliving of past experience, this, this eruption into the present of things from the past is a very natural, even normal, and perhaps even necessary part of our meditative process. This we a life review in AA, they call it a moral inventory, this, this, this recollection, this um, experiencing of actions from our past. And it could be past from a few minutes ago, from yesterday, or from so long distant, you, you'd forgotten even all about these experiences. But in the, the quietness of the meditation, these things come up, right? You just, they're just there. And we can have all of these emotions around them. We can have guilt and shame and, and f- remorse and hurt and anger and grief and resentment about these feelings, these memories from the past. 
And the, the stories will come up, you know, the time you weren't there for, for a friend, the cruel thing you said to your sister, the, the phone call you didn't make, uh, you know, the abusive situations you might have been in and how you actually didn't or weren't able to protect yourself. You know, all of these very complex things can come up. And, you know, through the meditation, we can really work through them a lot. But, boy, there always seems to be more, doesn't there? You know, we get through some layer and there's another layer underneath. This is very much part of our practice of no part left out, of just really coming to know ourselves. And in this, there's a process that one way or another we have to go through to actually find the healing or the transformation that's possible and and why this, should I say why this stuff comes up, but certainly how we can begin to relate to these memories, these experiences more skillfully. There's four steps we need to acknowledge that it happened, to accept that it happened, to forgive to whatever extent we're able to, and to bring compassion to the experience. So acknowledging is just we recognize that there were harmful actions, whether we did them or they were done to us. Um, And so it's not denying or minimizing what happens. It's just this recognition, this acknowledgement. This did happen. And the fact that it's up for you means there's still some stickiness there or some suffering around that experience. So we just accept that. We acknowledge that. And the acceptance is to say, yes, it did happen. I did that, or it was done to me, or I was part of that. It's just this willingness to say, it happened. Here in this process, we really need to distinguish between a whole sort of package of guilt and shame and remorse or regret. Guilt and shame says about bad or unskillful, unwholesome actions, I'm bad, and, you know, I I shouldn't have done that. It means I'm a terrible person. If other people knew, they wouldn't like me. It means this about me. And that's never that helpful. You know, sometimes it happens, and, you know, we just find ourselves in those kind of mind states. But that we get stuck in that, and that's the problem with identifying in that way. There's not a chance for movement there. Remorse or regret recognizes the same actions, but sees the actions as being unskillful. Not the person or the individual. There's not the same stickiness. And it's willing, in the, in the regret or remorse, to see the unskillfulness and to have some kind of determination to change. You know, and it doesn't mean we always can, but some recognition of the suffering in that experience and a a commitment to ourselves, to others, to, to change that patterning of behavior. So really helpful, and again, we could say a lot more about this. I don't have time to go into it, but it's not about feeling guilty or ashamed, shaming ourselves about past actions. We've all done things that we regret, things that were unskillful, things that were harmful, things were perhaps done to us that that were really painful, really difficult. It's not, you know, we need to recognize if we're getting stuck or identified and, and work with that as skillfully as we can. 
so that the next stage can happen, which is forgiveness, where we really see, you know, the whole story that it couldn't in that moment have been otherwise. Whatever we brought to that experience, whatever happened, it happened. You know, it happened. They say about forgiveness, forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. Giving up all hope for a better past. How many mind moments or hours have you spent in the if-onlys, or I wish, or I could have, or should have, or, you know, they, should, they shouldn't have, I shouldn't have. Trying to change the past is a recipe for suffering. Talk about stickiness, you know. It's gone. It's no longer here for us to work with. It's in the past. But what we start to see is, yeah, we can't change the past. As Carol likes to say, dead as the dinosaurs, you know, back there with the pyramids and the pharaohs, gone. But what we can change is our relationship to the past. And that actually does change the past in, in the way that really matters, in our relationship to it, our understanding of it, leading potentially to the last step, which is compassion. You know, this is suffering. Whatever happened, our own actions, the actions of others that harmed us, a lot of suffering. And to just let that be an opening to compassion, to really the tenderness of just the how difficult it is to be a human being, the fragility, the vulnerability, the craziness, uh, the challenge of, of life. And to really see that this whole process is possible, that whatever happened, you know, that healing is possible. And sometimes it's time. We have to do this gently when we're ready, when it feels right. But this is a process that meditation can really bring a lot of healing into. So this process of acknowledging, accepting, forgiveness, and then compassion. And of course they all weave together. It's not just a, a linear list. So that's one of the main movements of mind or a big movement of mind we have is the past and ruminating, stewing, trying to fix the past. The other big movement, of course, is into the future. And, you know, all of the planning and worrying and strategizing and manipulating and this and that. And, you know, it's, it, it, you know we plan the next sitting we'll do or where we'll go walking or the next hour or the next day or the next meal or the next retreat. You know, how many of you have sat on this retreat planning your next retreat? You know, what will I do? Well, maybe then I'll have figured this out. You know, it's so obsessive. And part of it is, you know, we have the luxury most of the time of a lot of choices, you know, in our lives and what we can do with our lives. And even here on retreat, you know, in the limited world that we live in, you know, abundant choices, you know, 
what about this? What about that? This aspect, that 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 perspective. What would this person say? What would that person say? What you know? What I thought yesterday. What I might think tomorrow. What practice should I do? What focus should I have? You know, should I look at Vedner or what about continuity? Or maybe it's just about concentration. I mean, you know, I'm sure Brian talked about you know just the doubt that we can spin in because we have so many choices and. There's no one right. Why doesn't someone just tell me what to do, for God's sake? You know, they just tell me, do it like this. I could just, you know, get in line and do it. That's sometimes we just so want someone to do that. And most of us in our lives, certainly in this culture in the West, live in a low, a chronic state of low-level stress through this kind of agitation, the choices, the busyness of life, the multitude of things we have to take care of. I heard a doctor say once that no matter what people come in to see him for, all of the different conditions of mind and body and stomach and heart and liver or whatever it is, 90% of them are stress-related. You know, if the stress in the person's life could calm down a bit, the symptoms and even the condition could be alleviated. When we're having future thinking, I see there's two main threads that can run through it. There can be the sort of anxiety thread, which is a little bit the aversion, the worry. But there can also be the excited thread, which is more the grasping, the wanting, you know, what about this? And this will be great. And I'll do this and do that. So that's, you know, what's important to notice in that movement. And we can use... um, the RAIN acronym that Guy spoke about the other morning, which is you know usually recognition, acceptance, investigation, non-identification. Again, in all of these things that I'm talking about, that's a really helpful way to get closer to what's happening. I heard another teacher talking about this RAIN acronym, and she had two different ways of talking about the I and the N that I really liked. So the R, recognition. The I, um, the A, acceptance. For the I, instead of investigation, which can seem a little heavy-handed, or even interest, she said intimacy. And I really liked that as a kind of just getting closer. We're not talking about fixing or changing, but can I be with this? And then for the end, not identification or not personal can seem a little abstract sometimes. She said nature. This is just the nature of a mind and a body for to have moods, emotions, anger, fear. So I, I like that. And again, anything that helps us get a little closer is helpful. So we explore this tendency of mind. We see its impact in the mind and the body and often can see it as a suffering state, as a source of restlessness. Sometimes we need to cut through it with the sword of wisdom. Joseph talked about working with thoughts the other day and all these skillful things. Sometimes it's just not now. I mean, how much time can you spend, have I spent, planning? I think Carol talked about this the other night. You know, what I'm going to do when I get out of this retreat. And it's weeks away. It's even months away. And we're still, you know, I'll go there and go here and see this friend and that friend. And so I did a test once where I, you know, kind of remembered my, you know, top 10 of what I'm going to do, or maybe it was less than that, five or so. And when I got home, I actually tracked whether 
I did the things that I'd been planning or thinking, spending so much time thinking about, and when, whether any of them came true in any shape or form, like I'd spent hours planning and imagining. Guess what my hit rate was for, for that match? Zero. I mean, literally zero. <laughs> Nothing. I either didn't want to do the things, or I kind of did them, but they turned out differently, or, you know, the person never said to me what I wanted them, you know, what I had planned. They were, you know, the conversation that I, it didn't happen. Guess what? You know, I wasn't in control of what they were going to say, like I am in my fantasies. So when you start to see that, it kind of takes the wind a little bit out of the sails of this obsession with the future and planning and fixing and trying to manipulate. And, you know, you can come to this view, this understanding that not only can we not manipulate and fix the future, we don't really even need to, certainly not here in the retreat. You know, it's not possible. It's kind of give it up already. You know, it just start to laugh at this mind that keeps reaching out there, trying to uh, live in this future life. And to see really what we're doing is reinforcing this subtle or not so subtle message that here is not okay, that now is not okay. You know, this, this restlessness, as Ajahn Amaro and Pasano said, of leaning forward, something out there that's better. And it makes this okay, not okay. And so we come to the last and again, I don't know what your percentage is, but we spend certainly some time in the present, but then what the mind does is ask this question, am I okay? And you can notice this kind of commenting or narrating, oh, now she's doing this, or what about that? A little too fast, a little too slow, too much of this, not enough of that. What about this? Might get worse. Don't know. You know, ask this. What about, you know, endless, endless kind of thing, you know, this, and it's just like that sutta, you know, how did I do yesterday? Not as good. I thought I'd be better today. Yesterday, with this time of day, this experience today, not so much. You know, what about tomorrow? If I do this today, maybe tomorrow, you know, and it's endless. And a big one is, what are others thinking of me? You know, as I'm going through the meditation hall or dining room, you know, we have this sense, right, right, that all eyes are upon me as I'm getting my food or my cup of tea. What do they think? Oh, I spilt. Who looked? You know, it's amazing. <laughs> but if you really, you know, let's get real again, everyone's doing it. So they're not looking at you. They're having the same obsessive thoughts about themselves. You know, what do people think about me? Do they like me? Do they not like me? Am I too fast? Am I too slow? What about this? You know, when do I take my shower? You know, how am I doing my yogi job? What do the staff think of me? I know I kept waiting on retreats here to get a note from the housekeeper saying, no one has ever cleaned the front hallway as well as you have. And it never came. You know, they never noticed how well I was cleaning the front hallway. But we can obsess around this, right? And what, you know, again, it's all about me. So just to, again, break the delusion, if we're all thinking it, then we're not thinking about you, right? We're thinking it about me. So, but even, you know, it is a little bit of advance. We're thinking about the now, but still in this sense of restlessness, of not being okay. So what would it take to actually 
be okay, to have some trust in some fundamental okayness that really is the truth of things. I mean, on some deep, deeper, more profound level, we are okay. We've got a mind and a body. We're here practicing the Dhamma. I mean, we're blessed in many ways. What would it take to just accept the okayness of this mind and this body? It's a radical shift, but it's one that needs to happen for us to actually really deepen in our practice. We have to begin to prefer stillness to movement, to prefer now to tomorrow or yesterday, to prefer this in all its messiness. I talked in my first talk about you know how we sometimes want to meditate from the neck up and not be in the messiness of the moods and emotions and fears and wants. If we can just land in the here and now, there is a fundamental okayness that's a, a huge doorway to deepening and to seeing clearly. So I want to just finish with a short poem by Hafez, It Felt Love. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. Well, mindfulness is this light that shines into our inner being and shows us its beauty, its okayness. Starting to trust that, being willing to stay, to be present, to be okay with this, with here, with now. That's where real freedom, real happiness and ease can actually be found. So let's just sit for a moment in silence. Thank you for your attention. Time for walking and then the last sit with. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.